This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, boomers and fans, to another episode of Warp 5, Trek FM's dedicated enterprise show. I'm Norman Lau, and with me, as he is every week, and I think every week you have a new t-shirt on now, is Will Wynn, our content manager for Trek FM. Hey, Will, how you doing? I'm good. I've definitely felt the need to up my t-shirt game. I feel like I have to wear a different t-shirt, not only every time I record, but every half hour of a podcast. So half an hour into the show, I'm going to change t-shirts because I feel like I need to maintain that level of t-shirt diversity no i'm just and, uh, i just love the trek fm t-shirts i just love uh, not trek fm t-shirt i love the the star trek t-shirts so will is sporting the glorious neptune and back in six minutes from the uh very first episode of season one and i know there's some controversy of that because of pluto but i digress we'll get to that later and also with us again is jeffrey harlan friend of the show and author of trekopedia Dot com. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing good. Uh, but get, I'm getting ready uh, for uh, upcoming wedding here next week. Yeah, you are a busy man. You are, let's see, juggling wedding invitations, illustrating your own comic, publishing your own new comic, anything that you would, I don't know, cure cancer, you know, solve old peace, anything in the middle there? Maybe retune the Warp 5 engine? I'm actually rereading all of the Enterprise novels as we speak. Wow. The man does not stop this man. But I have a question for you, Jeff. Which dress uniform are you wearing? Which era dress uniform are you wearing for your nuptials? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm just wearing a regular tux. So you're going uh, holodeck Dixon Hill tux. Got it. (laughs) Now, all of of Jeff's fans just dumped him on Twitter and Facebook. It's like, we thought you were real. Hashtag... Jeff's not for real. Oh, my brother was asking me if the vows were going to be in Klingon, and I told him no. no. I, actually, I thought you were going to wear the Monster Maroon. I was hoping for that. <laughs> so maybe we'll Photoshop you in a Monster Maroon. Don't need a Photoshop. I have one. Yeah. I know, but at the wedding. At the wedding. I mean, it's too, it's too hot, though. It's too hot for that. Oh, right? way too hot. That's why you have the vest, the, the chest vent, <laughs> like the, the chest venting thing where you just pull it apart. That's where, he ha- that's where he'll keep his vows. Like, hold on a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
All right, folks, we're having way too much fun. So before we get into the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind all of our listeners out there at Trek FM that they can discover an incredible amount of StarCraft podcast content by visiting Trek FM. And you can also find us wherever you get your podcasts. Now, you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can always find us, stream us or download the MP3 file from our website at Trek FM and grab the RSS link there as well. Now, if you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit that subscribe button because that helps us out here at Trek FM greatly. And it makes it easier for other listeners to find the shows on Trek FM as they search iTunes. And if you like what you hear on this show or any of the shows in the past on Trek FM for any of our shows on the network, please leave us a rating. We love five-star ratings. Who doesn't love five-star ratings? That's the best rating you can have, but we're trying to bring you the best content. So please do so when you get a chance. That helps us out greatly and increases our visibility for new listeners. Now, we have a wonderful show for you tonight because we are going to actually talk about not necessarily an episode or a season, but we're going to be talking about a product. And I think it's the first time we've done it on this show. We're going to be talking about the season one Enterprise Blu-ray set. And we are going to be singing the praises and sometimes singing the blues about Enterprise season one. We'll and be hearing that pun a lot tonight, folks, so just <laughs> warning you ahead of time. I was hoping to hear more of a groan. I, I, I said that just to get a groaner out of Will, but I think he's, he's figured me out by now. So, yes, season one, Enterprise, the Blu-ray collection. And it actually really is a nice collection. And I'd like to read something for all of you out there. It is the back of the Blu-ray collector set. And this is what the marketing people have to say about this series and this particular set. And it says, a bold new beginning. Now, for the first time on Blu-ray, follows Starfleet's earliest forays into deep space in breathtaking 1080p high-definition picture and 5.1 sound. Captain Jonathan Archer commands the Enterprise NX-01, the first Earth-built vessel capable of breaking the Warp 5 barrier. With his trusted chief engineer, Charles Tripp Tucker III, science officer to Paul, and security expert, Lieutenant Malcolm Reed, Archer is tasked with exploring new unknown star systems. Propel your imagination farther and faster than ever before with an ever-expanding universe of captivating characters, interstellar intrigue, and adventures that will come to define the very essence of Starfleet. That's pretty exciting. I think by that alone, I would pick this up and buy it. Who writes this stuff? I mean, I don't mean that in a glib way, but like, who writes this this type of material for a Blu-ray set? That's a good question. I'm pretty sure that Jeff would probably take credit for that um, amongst all of his many duties. No, that's a good question. And I, I personally think that somewhere in, this would be CBS that owns this, so somewhere in the CBS pantheon of whoever works on Blu-rays, they would Probably have this entire team. Department. Yeah, the marketing department would do that. And it is a really nice cover. Um, I know that you guys can't see this, but you can see this online. It's a cover of Archer being flanked by Tapal and Tucker and Hoshi and Travis, who sadly enough weren't mentioned in those comments. But they're wearing the environment suits, and they look, they look like they're walking in a right stuff type of format. And I think that's the right thing. That's the right look for something like Enterprise. So I know that this is one small review of what the Blu-ray set has to offer, just in terms of the promise of what's in the set. But on TrekMovie.com, there was another review. Will, would you like to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so they broke down... TrekMovie.com uh, broke down kind of the technical specifications of what 
the Blu-rays would end up being. So I think I think it's clear for for fans to understand that Enterprise was shot in a way that was different than TNG. It was different than Voyage, different than DS9, that it was already shot for in widescreen. There was a, actually a huge fight over widescreen shooting. It's actually covered in the special features, which we'll talk about later. But Enterprise was shot uh, in a way that made it ready for HD conversion. So obviously, the way it was shot back in the early 2000s is obviously going to be different than what TV would evolve to now. But it was shot in a way that allowed it to be relatively easily uprendered or sh- uh, shown in a more high-def format, unlike any of the any of the other series, which is why uh, the Enterprise Blu-rays were released right after the TOS remastered Blu-rays, I think, because it was easy for them to do. And ironically enough, it's it's the series that weren't done in that way, DS9 and Voyager, which are still incomplete. But that's why we have TOS, TNG, and Enterprise. But I think a lot of the reason why it was remastered was because it was already done in a way which made it relatively easy for them to do afterwards. But I think it's really important to also note that the picture quality on the Blu-ray is so clear. If you have the TV to actually see it, it's so clear, even clearer than the HD version that you can get on Amazon Prime or Hulu. It's just really crisp. I think that's the thing that really jumps out to me. Not only the title screen's really crisp and they have new anima- um, effects for the, the title screens, but also just the, the actual picture quality is just top-notch. I think it's visually the best-looking Star Trek that you can get right now, honestly. So, Jeff, what did you think about the Blu-ray set when you first saw it? And I know you. You would have gone through every single pore, every single second, and every single frame of this because this is what you do. So seeing it for the first time, seeing it in upconverted 1080 from... And you probably own... Did you own the original DVD set? Yes, I did. Okay, Uh. so one distinction that I want to make sure that the listeners know is that we are talking about the Blu-ray set. There was originally a first release DVD set of all four seasons that had a fair amount of content that got carried over into these sets. So you would be, it would be clear to see a huge visual distinction between the 720 set that came out and the 1080 set. I'm sorry, the DVD quality set that came out versus the 1080 upconverted from the 720 broadcast. Yeah, it, was, it looked just incredibly... Uh uh, more clear and crisp and you know, the picture is just so much better uh, than it was on the DVD. Um, the, uh, even the streaming ones, uh, it, it's still not quite as good as watching it on the Blu-ray. I mean, when you got the TV for it, it just really pops. Um, even considering that, uh, you know, like, uh, the, uh, um, special effects at the time they made them, they're, you know, not quite as good as what we're used to now, but they're still really good. Um, they still really look good on on the screen. Uh, I'm I'm still just really impressed. I, I watch these uh, Blu-rays all the time. Uh, um, I, I just really enjoy pulling them out and looking them over. You know, the interesting thing. Just I'm no real serious techie when it comes to this. There there are a lot of people that I know that could probably talk about this subject matter in in, in more technical detail, but. We are in 2015, and maybe a couple years ago, I think you know TV had made a conscious choice to shoot everything in high definition in 1080. So you can actually really see a difference between obviously DVD, which was, you know, it was good enough, but it really still didn't capture the quality that Enterprise was shot in. So it's almost kind of 
retroactively disservicing the the finished product. But when you finally got it to 720, when you finally got it to the Blu-ray quality and up converting it to 1080, you still see a little bit of upscale degradation. Now, as a graphic designer, when we take a high-resolution image, there is... And I'm just doing this really quickly just to try and explain the difference in terms of pixelation. When you take a picture and the picture has 10 pixels, I'm just going to pull this out arbitrarily out of the air because I know there are designers out there that are probably tearing their hair out. They're saying, Norm, this isn't how it works. But this is how it works. You take a picture. That picture is comprised of 10 pixels. There are no more or no less pixels. If you want to enlarge it 15%, you're taking the information from those pixels and just enlarging those pixels 15%. You are not increasing or adding any more information to what is already there. Therefore, if you are enlarging or making or increasing any type of quality, you're doing so in a way where the quality really isn't there. You're not introducing more information to fill in the gaps of detail. You are just trying to fill a format. And the format in this case is the widescreen format or the 1080 format for the Blu-ray. So you can see here and there some artifact breakdown in the effects because those effects aren't being filled in with information that technically doesn't exist. It's lit- if anyone has played with Silly Putty, TLDR, if anyone has played with Silly Putty and you made your impression when you stretch it out, that's technically kind of what happens. There is no more information that you are impressing. You are just enlarging it artificially. So there is a little bit of that. But I do have to say that these Blu-rays really do look fantastic and far better than the DVD set. You are looking at detail that you've never seen before if the DVD was your first introduction to the series or if you were streaming it from like a service like, say, Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime. And do yourself a favor, and if you really want to watch Enterprise Season 1 or any of the seasons in its best detail the Blu-ray set really is the way to do it because you are seeing it as it was intended as the creators and the producers and all the people that were working with makeup and costumes, especially makeup. Makeup is so noticeable in high definition, don't you think? Well, we just had the, the ready room conversation about Bounty and one of the things we talked about was the issue with the Telerites. Can you talk about you know, how we could see the difference between, say, TOS when it was shot in a certain resolution and what they did with the Tellerite makeup and bounty. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, discounting the fact that there's like 40 years between TOS and, and Enterprise in terms of makeup and how it's evolved, I think clearly even with the TOS remastered, there's only so much detail that you could put on the the original Tellerite versus the Tellerite that you see in Enterprise where there's so much more detail. And not only is there so much more detail, it's detail that can be meaningfully seen by the audience and appreciated for it. I think that's the interesting thing is that so much for, for Star Trek for so long, it was used to just standard definition TV. Their sets weren't actually built in a way that could be seen by anything beyond a standard definition because they could see the wood paneling. They could see that the paint and the screws. I think Enterprise, because it was the one made in the 2000s, they knew they could foresee the, the, the trend that they're going to need to really overbuild their sets in a way that these sets were actually going to be seen in so much more detail than ever before and i think we're going to talk about later later on in the special features that they talk to the akudas and they talk to herm zimmerman they talk about like how this set was the most impressive but also the most um 
I would say nerve-wracking set because it was a set that really had to stand up to high-definition scrutiny. Yeah, and I read this really interesting article about how much pressure prop masters and costumers and makeup artists are under nowadays because the amount of information that can be captured with the cameras of today, like the red quality cameras of today, are forcing all of these different departments to take a look at their game and really improve upon it because today's audience is really looking for and is accustomed to being able to process that information and actually actively look for literally high-definition quality prop work, costume, costume detail, makeup detail, makeup effects, and special effects detail. Because before, prop masters or people in those departments really didn't care. It didn't really get captured all that well, or it faded into the atmospheric perspective of film. But it's just changed. Everything has changed. And even in the quality of the Blu-ray that Enterprise Season 1 was recorded in or upscaled for, there still is a little bit you can tell is missing from the overall quality that it could have been if, in fact, the show was mastered for 1080 and the effects were mastered in 1080. So, But, again, those are great technical details that we can always just pour over and pour over and pour over. TrekMovie.com has great review on it. So does Blu-ray.com. Just Google those, and you can read a little bit more in the technical detail. But more importantly in this set versus the DVD set is we have... Two very interesting, very lengthy, and very in-depth conversations that you can only get on the Blu-ray. And one of them is on disc one, and it is a hour-long perspective, a retrospective, between Rick Berman and Brandon Braga. Jeff, why don't you start us off and tell us a little bit about what the listeners can expect when they encounter and digest and just revel in this great nostalgic retrospective between these two titans for enterprise one thing that really struck me was that they were really uh humble about uh, the whole thing um and they frequently made jokes about uh, the fourth season with someone else uh, coming in and taking over um they they had a really good sense of humor about it all um and they talked about what worked about the show um and what didn't work and all the problems that they had getting the show to come about. I mean, the studio didn't even want a prequel in the first place and they pushed for it and they wanted something completely different than what we ended up getting. And that was largely because of the studio pushing back. And they talked at length about uh, just the process of getting the show onto the screen in the first place. And it was really interesting conversation. Yeah. I was struck by how Frank everyone was. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, they recorded this in December of 2012, so it had been seven years since the show had been off, now even longer. Now we're approaching the 10-year mark, and I think with the new movies, with the new J.J. universe, I think I think there's a sense of there's nothing left to lose to really lay your cards out on the table and say, hey, this is what worked and this is what didn't work. And I actually was struck by the body language, too. Um, I don't know if you read this the same way, Jeff, but I think when they mentioned, you know, Manny Cotto was the only one that respected canon or continuity and that he saved the show in season four, that there was never a quote-unquote bad Manny Cotto episode. I detected a definite sense of bitterness or just resentment from them saying, like, hearing that from the fans and saying, like, oh, I guess, 
We only existed for Manny Cotto to come in and save the day. And I think for me, reading the body language, particularly with that, was very telling because I think they were, at the same time, they were being frank. But I really feel like it was a, they were holding a lot back, too, in terms of venting just because mm-hmm. they just were constantly had this criticism thrown at them that only the, by the fourth season did the show get good. So do you think these were kind of um, matured sour grapes? They uh, they took those uh, aged sour grapes and turned them into wine. <laughs> <laughs> no, Will, actually, you really you bring up a really good point because as the interview started, they were both on high chairs, which I think is a really bad idea for any type of interview because it already puts the two people that are being or that are supposed to be frank and candid, it already puts them in an uncomfortable physical situation. It was really hard for them to get comfortable, it looked like, and it, it gave them a certain air about them, like they, they were like these princes of Star Trek, even though they probably don't believe so. I, I've never really been a big fan of putting people in those director's chairs because it just it elevates them and it doesn't make them comfortable, and it takes away a little bit from the sincerity, I think, fra- of, of what they were saying. But the, the thing that... that really struck me, and I think that we all agree on this, is that you did feel a sense of they wanted to be in full disclosure of their feelings and of their memories, especially between these two, because I think these two pretty much know each other about as well as a married couple would know each other. I mean, they worked together for how many years? Were they, they said? Almost 17 or 18 years? Yeah, certainly more than 10 Certainly more than 12, I think like 14, 15, something like that. And then Rick probably had an overall career with Star Trek for like 18, almost 20 years, going back all the yeah. way to next gen, obviously. And they were saying that they were, you know, or at least Brandon said that he was in constant contact with Rick on a daily basis. It was his morning phone call. So when you have people that have worked together for that long in that type of proximity and literally can finish each other's sentences or thoughts, you know that the wink, wink, nudge, nudge type of storytelling that they were doing in this interview was very carefully, I think, picked for certain effect, like the Manny Cotto references, because people did give Manny Cotto full credit for pretty much saying that, you know what, if it wasn't for him, um, we wouldn't have gotten the Star Trek that we wanted to see in season four. And it's too bad that he couldn't have continued because it could have been the best Star Trek ever. I think as a writer, creatives usually tend to take that as a backward compliment. Oh, totally. Right. Just saying like, oh, yeah, that pretty much saved the series. Right. You guys (laughs) that did all the work building this thing and launching this series like, yeah, didn't really matter until the fourth season. Right. 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 And, you know, Brandon was there since what the next generation. And then he was pretty active in Deep Space Nine and somewhat active in Voyager. But I can see that when somebody has invested so much of their, not just their life as a career, but their life personally, because you're thinking about it on a daily basis, I'm sure that could sting. And I'm sure that um, the fan fervor that he talked about was just relentless at times. I wrote down a couple notes from this interview. One of the things that, or one of the phrases that Rick said that really got my attention was Star Trek when it was good and I think he was talking about Next Generation he said Star Trek when it was good was appointment TV 
It was so important to people that they made actual dates for the entire family to sit down as a, as a nucleus and watch Star Trek. I thought that was really interesting. Um, but right after that, Brandon Braga was saying that he received death threats for some of the ideas that they brought um, to generations in terms of killing Kirk. I mean, Jeff, do you remember these stories? You were, I mean, yeah, you were, I remember it was like when, right, uh, when it happened, I remember yeah. hearing about it. Um, what, I mean, what do you remember specifically? Um, just that in uh, response to him getting one of the writing credits on the, the seventh Star Trek film in which Kirk dies, all of a sudden he's getting death threats because he wrote the story in which Kirk dies. And it's like, that was the whole point, And that was one of the things that uh, Shatner wanted when he came into the film in the first place. I mean, you can't throw sole responsibility on the writer for that. And it's just people just took things too personally and too, uh, took it to extremes. Um, and the same thing happened uh, later on uh, with uh, um, with Enterprise. Uh, he was getting all kinds of hate and vitriol on the internet, which, you know, just most of which was just completely not justified at all. Uh, he was actually trying very hard to try to get things to work. And you could tell from uh, some of the things that he was saying that, you know, he was very aware of these things, but he also had to try to satisfy the studio at the same time. Well, let's talk about that. Now, we're, we, there were two phases of pretty much this conversation, the mm-hmm. what worked phase and the what didn't work phase. Well, let's go through some of the things that they discussed that did work. So I think what did work was the... The prequel idea, I think for them, they really needed to think of something fresh because they had just come off of Voyager. And I think that's the important thing to to hammer Homer because they were talking about like they finished wrapping Voyager in the summertime and they had to, they had to be ready to go by September for Enterprise. They later on, Denise Akuta said there was a five week turnaround between closing five weeks between <sighs> closing the sets for Voyager and wrapping finishing there and beginning construction of the new sets for the Enterprise and XO one, which was a completely different time period. It wasn't L cars. It wasn't the twenty fourth century. It was a completely different design aesthetic from the get go. And I think for them, the prequel idea was the only idea for them that still appealed to them and was still fresh enough coming off of Voyager, DS9, TNG, and that universe. they And in the movies, the TNG movies, right? They had to come up with something different. So I think once they came up with that idea, they then had to present it to the studios. And obviously that's where a lot of the conflict and a lot of the tension came because first and foremost, I think probably the number one complaint that people have about Enterprise is that they hate the Temporal Cold War. They hate it. Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. And it makes no sense. It's just kind of like, why why are they doing this? And only by getting kind of that behind-the-scenes information do you now understand why it seems so cobbled together. Because the ideas were in conflict because the studio was pushing back and they were pushing back. And oftentimes, the compromise that they come up with is the best that they can come up with. But clearly, on screen, sometimes it can you can see how much of a compromise it is because it really was a fight from the very get-go in terms of the the studio wanted something futuristic. They're like, yeah, go beyond Voyager. And that was the idea that was a non-starter for Berman and Braga. They're like, we've already done that. We're going to have to do something different. So they came up with this new idea to kind of make it a prequel and a sequel. And I think the, the interesting thing 
is that uh, Brandon had mentioned that the idea of a temporal Cold War is a show unto itself, right? It's mm-hmm. a show that could be its own series, which is really true. If I, I would have actually enjoyed seeing Star Trek temporal investigations just, just about that. And they actually had the space and the narrative to actually build up that entire arc, that entire universe. But when it's grafted onto Enterprise, you can see the conflict right there, but it was definitely a conflict that they were fighting with the studios literally from the start. You know, one of the things that I really appreciated that Brandon said on camera, and it was a really nice moment for him. He, he kind of collected his thoughts. He looked at the camera and he said, I 1,000% was behind the show. I truly believe, because no one wants to put out a bad product. That's not the intention of putting out a show. You, you want to be, as a writer and as a creative, you want to put out the best product that you can. So I truly believe in my heart of hearts that he wanted to do the right thing. I think that that five-week period that Denise Okuda illustrated in describing the ramp-up time to the show is so telling because not just in production, but you have to have all of the logistics behind that within that five-week period as well. You have to have personnel, you have to have staff, you have to have services, you have to have department heads, you have to have construction, permits, insurance, the front office, budget. I mean, think about all of that. All of that has to be simultaneously integrated at the same time. Now, they do have the luxury of having that entire crew built in. But what you said was absolutely true. They had to start from the very beginning. Herman Zimmerman had to go in and pretty much think about this in a 180-degree situation. He's not going into Elkars, and he's not going further past Voyager. He is going literally 150 years from now. So I think those were some of the challenges that the show faced. And, and Jeff... I think we discussed the boy band factor because it was something that you've brought up before that that has that that brings you much pain. So, what do you remember? Not just from the interview, but what do you remember when that was discussed in 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 previous articles, like say in Star Trek Communicator with Larry Nemechek? Well, I'd heard about it several times, and season one of Enterprise and season one of Smallville came out the same year, and Smallville was doing that, and the same. Uh, thinking was going on with the executives at UPN, they wanted to try to appeal to the youth demographic, which they clearly know nothing about, and they want a new band coming in every week to play different kind of music that will appeal to the kids. And on Smallville, even there it was a stretch, because what band is going to come to Smallville, Kansas, in the middle of nowhere, let alone to a ship traveling faster than anything else that anyone has ever seen going out into the unknown parts of the galaxy? I mean, where are these bands coming from? And it's clearly these the executives had no idea what was going on with this show. Yeah, they mentioned they didn't know what a hull was, right? That was the big thing. They're like, what's a hull, right? And I think... That's one of the biggest things to, about this was there was a huge change of administration, right? I think Larry Larry Nemechek goes in a lot more detail, the, the change between Paramount and Viacom and UPN and all of that. And I think by the time Enterprise came about, it was a different studio administration. Mm-hmm. Beforehand, you had a much more supportive administration that understood Trek but also loved Trek. I think if you read Michael Pillar's Fade In, the making of Insurrection, the detail notes from the studio heads were they sound like they were from the Trekkies themselves. They knew 
Star Trek. They appreciate Star Trek. The notes that they added from the studio actually were from fans because they were themselves fans. But by the time Enterprise came about, it was something that they didn't appreciate um, the property as the as Star Trek. They just viewed it as any other property. So they had all these unfounded assumptions or just didn't know like what a hull was. They didn't know like that's not what happens in the mess or the galley. This is what a starship is supposed to do. And I think... Yeah, that restaurant on the ship. Yep. <laughs> oh, yes, exactly. They call it the restaurant on the ship. <laughs> right, exactly. right. Well, you know, um, because Rick and, and Brandon are the creative types, the most difficult thing for a creative is to have one entity say that you have carte blanche on creating the vision that you want to create. That's why we have brought you aboard. In the same breath, that same entity is telling you exactly how to execute your vision. And I think that's probably the toughest thing for these two people because they're so well-versed in Star Trek, not necessarily experts in the original series. They both say themselves that they don't know the original series that well, and it's somewhat translated into their writing or into the quality and detail of their writing staff. But they are expert enough in the industry of Star Trek to have made the right decisions and to forge new ideas that were always either second-guessed or curtailed pretty much at the last minute. So just in summing up this one segment, what I really enjoyed Brandon saying was that, again, he was a huge proponent of his work and... He does seem, in his very last expression, somewhat bittersweet. He and Rick have a very quiet moment where I think they have, even though they're not, they're separated by their chairs, they do have a mind-melding moment where they just kind of both think out loud, if these fans only knew, you know? And for all of you listening out there, what we have discussed is nowhere near the depth of what actually happens in this interview. Do yourself a favor and watch this Blu-ray set because this first part of the two special features that are exclusive to this set, it really is some amazing content that you can mine. And even though they don't tell you everything, you can get a sense of the birth of Enterprise, the pains that it had gone through in its earlier incarnations of ideas, where it could have gone, you'll actually recognize some of the sentiments that we've actually brought in on the show from time to time about how this show could have been if X and Y. So that's really worth seeing. But even more so... Oh, can I add one more thing, sec- actually, Norm, to that? Sure, sure, sure. Go ahead. I think it's even more interesting because it's almost... It's about Enterprise, but a good chunk of their time is also a retrospective of their time with Star Trek, which I think is really interesting too. They talk about Enterprise, but they also talk about their entire span of like what they learned from their entire time with Star Trek, which they they spend a fair time talking about generations and they spend a fair time talking about all these other things. And I think it informs what happened in Enterprise. I will disagree with Brandon about one thing though. He was he mm. definitely poo-pooed the idea of the boomers. Remember remember that? He's like, "Ah, oh, you know, we had the idea of the of Travis being the boomers and I thought about yeah, I I thought about you when he and said that." And it was that, like, yeah. "Yeah, we thought it was yeah, a cool idea growing up growing up on a ship never come back to earth, but eh, that I didn't really have much, you know, uh gas to it afterwards." I'm like, "Are you kidding me? That's one of the things that in my in my in my mind would have been fantastic to carry on, but again, that shows you 
how they are completely operating from a different mindset and the, the, the viewers are operating from a different mindset i and he even poo-pooed fortunate son i think later on like yeah mm-hmm. it was an okay episode and that's one of my all-time favorite enterprise episodes so that right there just shows you sometimes not necessarily like uh inherent or ill intention disconnect but the viewer is going to like something that's different than what the show writer would want so i think that's very right. interesting Actually, I'm glad that you brought that part up about them talking about the entirety of the Star Trek experience, and especially with Generations, the Next Generation episodes and and the series focus that they gave in this particular interview, because I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, once again, this is Enterprise that we're talking about, and it gets completely waylaid by the Next Generation. I can't believe that I'm getting These Are the Voyages in a documentary form. Unbelievable. We were just talking about that on Sunday with Earl Grey, how Next Generation actually manages to elbow its way into every series. It's in TOS, it's in DS9, it's in Voyager, it's in Enterprise, it's in everything, basically. It's the Riker maneuver. It is. They just elbow their way in there somehow. All right, so going on to the next segment. Now, this is on uh, Disc 6, and it is the three-part documentary of basically the entirety of the making of Enterprise. And when we were discussing what to to talk about for this show, um, this is something that I know, Will, you were really excited to talk about this in, in very specific detail. So why don't you start us off and talk about this particular documentary. Uh, it was to, to boldly go launching Enterprise. Right, so it's on disc six. And I think all of, actually every season... Uh, Every season has a disc where it has kind of like an uh, ongoing documentary. So I think the Boldly Go documentary is actually present in other uh, seasons, too. They're just different parts. So I think for season one, it's divided into three parts. And it's basically looking at the, the genesis of the concept of Enterprise, uh, going into designing the feel and the look of Enterprise, and then also the the casting and kind of getting the, the opinions of and perspectives from some of the actors and um, directors and, and producers as well. So I think it was really interesting that in the first part of it, they also talk about things that were covered in Brandon's and Rick's conversation, but they kind of go into more detail. And I think the first thing that jumped out to me in the first part was the theme song, right? So in addition to, I would say, fans not liking the temporal core, where I think the other big thing they don't like is the theme song, right? And I think it was so interesting for them to say, like, what was the genesis behind this incredibly polarizing theme song? They thought the montage was was perfectly fit and, and apt for the new series. I agree with them 100%. And I think it's really interesting to see how Braga hates the song. Rick Berman mentioned that, you know what, it's not that bad still. But I think the genesis of the song initially was they wanted to do something different. It had to be different from the previous Trek series that they did. That's why they didn't do Star Trek in the name. That's why it had to be completely different. And I think he mentioned that Enterprise is the only other word that when you see it identifies itself as Star Trek without using the word Star Trek. And that's very true. And I think there was a lot of thought that was put into you know rolling out Enterprise. And I think theme song previously was they had put in a beautiful day uh, from you two that was kind of like the test song that they were using for a while before they were able to find diane watson and 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 russell watson or or 
forget who the actual artist who sings it before they actually had that. But I think Diane Warren is Diane Warren in, in Russell. That's Watson. it. Okay. I think uh, Braga mentioned the first part that they should have really kept that U two part, but they meant they they knew that they couldn't license that song because it would cost an inordinate amount of money, and also I don't think U two have been okay with them giving the song to a TV show. But I think for them, I actually love. I actually don't mind the theme song at all. I think it actually works, but it's definitely something where it, it was well intentioned. But for many fans out there, it was a total no go, and to this day. People still talk about that theme song. Like it's such a barrier for them to watching this show. Yeah, the uh, um, conversation on the theme song really uh, um, struck a chord with me too. I'm, I can see what they were trying to go for, but the end result was not what they had intended. Um, especially uh, the the choice of the song. They were thinking they were going to get something more upbeat, like "Beautiful Day." They were expecting a new song that was written just for the show. They ended up getting something pulled off of the shelf that had been used on a bunch of other movies, including Patch Adams. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not what they were going for. And uh, it was a, a disappointment for them as well as for a lot of the fans. And I understand the picking that song, the words fit, but the tempo and the beat of the music just doesn't fit for me um the song itself is not bad it's just it just doesn't seem to fit with the uh, the tone that they were trying to achieve with that well especially when we actually get into season three because they actually made a higher tempo upspeed version of the song to be more energetic going into probably the darkest season of probably any star trek series maybe save season six or seven of Deep Space Nine. I was just going to say so, that. It's the most jarring in season three because it. I hate the fact that it's sped up, but also it. it's worse and it doesn't even match season three where they're just talking like the ship is damaged and crew are dying and it's, it's there's a very... It's even poppier. It's even poppier than the first iteration. It just... It's tough. Yeah, the cold opening going into that particular new version of the song wasn't quite the best combination and but you know it is it it was what it was and we will definitely talk about that when we get to the the season three portion of singing the blues but for me i mean the song is what it was and i enjoyed it um i know a lot of fans had a problem with the theme song for firefly joss whedon's space western and there are just some fans that really enjoy the orchestral traditional opening song because if done right, brings a lot of flavor and a lot of texture to how you settle into a show. And it gives you the tenor of the show. It gives you a lot of its personality. But I actually found this in, in my Voyager watch right now is I just fast forward through the theme song. I mean, it's just it's like two minutes that I want to save before, you know, before my evening gets too long because it's not really giving me any new information. So sure, when it first came out, the theme song's like, ah. But eventually, when people are watching it, they're like, oh, fast forward and we'll get into the episode. So I don't think it's really the point of contention anymore with fans. But um, that's, yes, that is probably one of the most polarizing elements of definitely when, when Enterprise came out and probably still is to this day. But I think conversely, where they missed, they missed the opportunity there, they really did hit a home run when they were talking about their casting so, Jeff, why don't you start us off a little bit here and talk about the strategy behind their casting and how important it was 
for them to have gotten off really on the right foot in a very natural and very easy way with Scott Bakula. Well, they were saying that they uh, had Bakula in mind, and he had made it clear that he wasn't really interested in being just another captain sometime after Janeway in the future. What they didn't know at the time was that, uh, from his interview, was that he uh, was immediately hooked when they told him that it was 100 years before Kirk and that this was going to be the guy that Kirk looked up to when he was growing up. And he was the prototype for all the captains to come, and that immediately drew him in. And as soon as they told him this was a prequel, he was on, um, and he was ready to sign. And that was just really easy casting for them. Um, And that they wanted him as their captain, and from him they would build the rest of the cast. And he was the focus for everyone else that they were going to cast. And so they needed to get him, and they got him pretty easily, actually. It's really interesting to hear actors talk about the trepidations that they have during this whole experience because knowing that basically their career, putting food on the table, and looking at securing their financial future for the next, say, five to seven years... And knowing that it's a Star Trek series, they hopefully thought that they were going to get seven years because traditionally the last three seasons or series did so. That's like winning the lottery. I mean, that's what they said to Dominic Keating or Connor Trenier. Mm-hmm. They said that, mate, you just won it was, uh, the lottery. It was, was it Don? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm. No, no, I no, think no it, was, it was Connor. Uh, Connor. It was Connor. Yeah. It was Connor. Because he wasn't he thought really he blew, yeah. into Star Trek before. He he was uh, kind of a casual fan. Um, he'd watched a little bit here and there, but he didn't really know you know, the, how big of a thing it was. And he gets cast, and he thought he was just getting a pilot, and his agent's like, no, man, you just hit the lottery. Yeah, yeah. And again, for somebody who, you know, he didn't know Star Trek per se. I mean, he had a passing knowledge of it, but this this particular part of the documentary took me all the way back to when I saw the very first footage of the Next Generation crew all together around a dinner table, and Jonathan Frakes held up a glass of water, and he said, to the next crew of the Enterprise, and then LeVar Burton says, live long and prosper. I was just absolutely just floored with joy when I first saw that, and hearing them reminisce about these particular stories is just, it's, it's fantastic because... You know, this is the crew. Crew and, and actors you, you fall in love with over the course of series. I mean, we all have the series that we love. And well, as a Niner, you would probably love to get this type of detailed information if ever we got a Blu-ray set with to bolt, you know, to, to, to have this type of documentary. I'm just shaking my head because I, 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 I just know that that's never going to happen. I'm just shaking my head because that's exactly, that's exactly what would happen, but it's not happening for... I mean, we'll get into that, but... Exactly, and there's and there's a set window for this stuff to happen, and I think as we go through the Enterprise Blu-rays, I think we're going to see that I think a lot of people eventually they got a lot more of the crew and the cast to kind of get together as they were releasing these four seasons of uh, of Blu-rays. But I think it's very telling that in this in this documentary, at least on the on the season one, there's only Scott, there's only Connor, there's only Dom. Right? You don't see Jolene, you don't see Linda, you don't see Anthony, you don't see. I think you see John Billings and. Briefly, very, very briefly, Flocks. But you, um, for Scott 
uh, just to be clear, for Scott and Connor and Dom, these are actual live interviews as part of the documentary. Right. You actually do get to see behind-the-scenes footage, pre-recorded footage of Jolene, um, who was incredibly beautiful and incredibly odd at the same time during her interview. Uh, John Billingsley, who I think he was just doing a junket for flocks. I don't actually got. I don't think we saw Linda Park. Yeah, I think maybe that's it. I think maybe I, the John Billingsley was just a pre from the DVDs. But you're right. I think we didn't see at all Linda. We didn't see Linda Park. We didn't see Anthony Montgomery. We didn't see John Billingsley. It was just for this documentary they specifically just brought in for the first season. At, at least they were just available or volunteered to do it. Was just not volunteer, but I could probably paid. Scott, yeah. Connor, and Dom, and it was really interesting to see that perspective. But I know that going forward, I want to see more. And I think because there's only a set amount of time where people can do this, you know, they're not going to be around forever or be inclined to talk about these things. So for that's why it's so interesting to see them in Enterprise. But for the other series, yeah, it's going to be it's disappointing because I know that there's a there's a running clock of being able to get people to open up like this. But I'm glad that we got to see it for Enterprise. And that's pretty much what the first 30 minutes of this three-part documentary was discussing. It was pretty much the ramp-up period between when Brandon had to create the show and create the network behind the show and then start casting. And the one through line that is throughout all of these interviews about the cast and from the very beginning of the show to the very end of the show is how amazing that Scott Bakula was, not only to work with, but just to be around. And I think that's a great testament just to him and to, I think, the success of the show in general. And there was one thing I wanted to bring up from from the um, interview on season uh, on disc one. Um, Rick Berman said that you can't call four seasons of a TV show a failure. I just wanted to reiterate that because I absolutely agree. Enterprise did get four seasons, whereas some TV shows only get one, maybe two. And they got four. And if I think one. that's... Yeah, if one. And sometimes not even past the pilot. So, again, a lot of these... Uh, when the characters were cast, they thought that we're just getting into a pilot. They realized they were part of the new tradition of Star Trek. They gave us this one fantastic pilot that was $12 million in shooting. And that's where the second part of this documentary focuses on. It focused on the production. And I know that, um, well, you're probably excited to see Doug Drexler in there. Yeah. yeah. Talking about the NX-01. So let's talk a little bit about the production notes uh, that they were able to share with us a little bit here for the second part. Yeah. So you had the Akutas, obviously, which are basically for, for Trek fans, our household name, the Akutas were on the design team for so much of Star Trek to the 90s. And then you had Herman Zimmerman who did the production sets and kind of the props as well. And then you had Doug Drexler who was also did makeup uh, in the 90s for Trek and went into visual effects. And you had them come in and kind of give their uh, experiences working with Enterprise, but also, also kind of looking back at their careers uh, in Trek as well. And I, I think, you know, when Denise was talking, Denise Okuda, the wife of Mike Okuda, she was talking about how this was so stressful because of not only the time frame that they were constrained coming right off of Voyager, but also because it was so new and it was a different aesthetic. They had to actually make, they actually had to actual video monitors that actually had to work, that there was a back, there was like a back room of, of computers, this, this, this farm of computers that actually made the actual NX-01 bridge work because it wasn't just uh, cutout gels that were lit up now. There was actually all video that actually had to display something that the audience could see. It, w- it couldn't just be something that they could pretend 
oh, I'm pretending to press this one thing and it's not doing anything, but I'm going to pretend it's doing something. It had to be interactive. And she mentioned that, you know, um, those things didn't work until 30 minutes before shooting. Like those things all, you know, when they turned it on, it didn't all actually work until about half an hour before they're supposed to shoot. And just how nerve wracking that is because they had to put this together. And, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not a creative. I haven't been in Hollywood, but I know that time is is money exponentially in Hollywood. That if you lose time, if you lose a day, that's thousands, potentially millions of dollars that the production will lose of out of a set budget, right? So it it was very much high stakes for them to do this. And I think as was really conveyed and um in terms of Doug Drexler, he was the designer of the NX01. So they had to come up with a new fresh design for this new ship. And I think it's something that we've talked about before here is how do you design something that's new, that's supposed to appeal to a new audience, but that's supposed to come before the nineteen sixties ostensibly. Like how do you do that? You can't just go back to What's pre-cardboard buttons, right? How do you go back to that? But how do you make it believable? So I think Doug was such a great guy in terms of explaining, you know, what his thinking was in terms of the NX-01 had a look. His In his mind, it was a bolted-on look. You could see the, the welding on this ship. That's how it was, quote-unquote, before Kirk's ship and how you extrapolate from there. So I think that was very interesting to kind of see his perspective. There's an interesting line that Scotty said in Relics, the the next generation recreation of the Enterprise, no bloody A, B, C, or D. And that brings me all the way back to what I believed Enterprise felt like. He said that we knew what speed we were going by the way that the deck plates were vibrating. And um, I know, Jeff, you know, you're a huge, the original series fan. So do you believe that... In my opinion, let me rephrase this. Do you think that the hardest thing to do for this series was redesign the ship, name it Enterprise, and make it feel like it is the progenitor for the Enterprise that we knew in the Constitution class and all the other ships that that would that would bear the name in the future? Yeah, absolutely. That had to be just like an impossible challenge, and I'm just amazed that he was able to pull it off at all. You know, Doug is, um, he's been, he's steeped in in Hollywood royalty, if you will. I mean, he is an Academy Award winning makeup artist from Dick Tracy, and you can see that there's a lot of care and a lot of thought that he, that he took. I mean, you, this is something that you take lightly. I mean, this is the Enterprise. You name the show after the ship, and the ship after the legacy of all of the series combined. So what do you think was his mentality at the time where the producers or the creatives, uh, Rick and Brandon, they sat him down and like, okay, Doug, we're going to give you this once in a lifetime opportunity, but this is what you have to do. Go. What do you think his, I mean, he talked about it in, in, in some way, but do you, how would you feel if that was, I mean, forget about being the first captain. You're the guy that designed the first on-screen enterprise. Yeah, that's got to be overwhelming. Uh, he I, seems so happy, though. There's, there's so many... Yeah, there, there's just so many f- ideas out there at the time of what ships looked like before um, the original series. And now he has to come up with something that maybe he goes with one of those ideas and tweaks it, or maybe he does something completely different. And then he's got to find out a way to make it look good on screen on top of all of that. And he's got to marry all three of those things together and make it work. And that's just incredibly difficult. Yeah. I think a lot of people, 
I mean, I, I mean, I'm going to count myself as one of them. I mean, I was not a fan of the NX one when I first saw it because it looked, it for me, it just didn't match match what my perceptions of it would be. And I think over time, I really appreciated. But also, you know, Doug Drexler is on the Babel conference and he's interacted with people and he's all like, you don't understand how many times I've talked to fans throughout the years talking about how about the NX one, how div- divisive it is. But I think I heard somewhere, and we'll have to have him on the show sometime. I heard, I heard him say, I think somewhere, that initially the studio just wanted to use the Akira model straight up. The Akira model that was that was in um, ILM or the in their database. They're like, yeah, we like that design. Let's just use that completely. Just use that. And Doug's like, you can't, you cannot do that. You cannot do that. So he, so understanding that that happened made me even, made me appreciate the NX1 even more despite the fact that people say it's the Akira Prize, whatever. The fact that he had a fight against the studio for them using the exact same model, for me, I think, really hammers home the point that he really had an almost impossible job and that he, he did it. And I think the the later extrapolations of the NX-01 refit makes so much sense. Like I could see where he was coming from, and it makes a lot of sense now. So I think, for me, the design aesthetics from Herman Zimmerman to the Akudas to... Uh, Doug Drexler, I think that is probably the, the the A plus part of Enterprise. I think that's the part that it's it's unimpeachable in terms of the level of attention and care that was put into it. I don't think anyone can question um, the quality that came from that. Right, Jeff, you were shaking your head that entire time talking about the Akira class. I'm going to give you a chance here to exercise some of your thoughts. <laughs> I have to admit that I was one of the people that called it the Akira Prize at first. Um, when they first released that first image, just looking at it from the top down and it didn't have a lot of detail, I was like, they just took the Akira and slapped it with some original series nacelles. And it wasn't until later when they released some other images where you saw it from other angles that I really started to see what they were doing with it and where they were going and I could appreciate it a little better. But my first impressions were not very kind (laughs) it's a tough thing it's a tough thing to be able to try and accept this new vocabulary that they were trying to introduce not just to new fans but but trying to retroactively convince you that this is star trek in this type of iconic sense everyone knows that the ship is supposed to look like this and the uniforms are supposed to look like this and the command structure, I mean, there's no, what, there's only one chair? And there's only one, there's only one piloting station? I mean, what is this? So I think that in some ways, because there were 18 continuous years of Star Trek, 25 seasons in total before Enterprise, and this was touched upon by Rick and, and Brandon in the first documentary, there is a lot of momentum that was working against this series from the very beginning. And... I think it's just human nature to resist that type of change, especially when not only do fans of Star Trek draw their line in the sand, kind of like the, you know, this far, no further from series to series. Now you're dealing with something that is completely throwing convention out the window. There is no Star Trek in front of the title. There is a non there is a non orchestral theme song that is anchoring the very beginning of the credit sequence. There are ship designs that look far more futuristic than any other ship that we've ever seen in Star Trek. And even the materials that were used in production 
are far finer grade materials that you've ever seen because of the way it was shot in high definition. So you're taking a look at not just dealing with a new cast and dealing with a new writing team, you're also trying to understand and deal with the vocabulary of all of this material that just screams that it's not Star Trek. And that is a huge, it's a monumental force to try and overcome. But I really do think that the cast helps in some way because they're very earnest. And I think that starts with Scott Bakula. Not everyone was on board with Archer at first, but I think that the show was cast correctly. Was it utilized properly? That's debatable. But let's talk a little bit about the cast because that's the third part of this documentary. They didn't interview everybody per se, but they were able to get some glimpses into the other characters that weren't available, I guess, at this time. We did get Scott and Dominic and Connor, and they were, they were all very revealing in some, in some respects. So, Will, what did you think about these interviews? I think, I think they're illuminating both for good and bad for me. I think I, I actually like Scott Bakula a lot. I think he was, I think he's probably my favorite character in terms of just because of his evolution and because also uh, Scott Bakula, whenever I see interviews with him, he just seems like a stand-up guy and he's humble and he has his head on his shoulders. Like every time I see Scott Bakula give an interview, my appreciation for his character as Archer goes up because he's such a good guy. Um, I think with for for Connor, I think it's the same way. I think he his interviews make him really appreciate make me really appreciate Connor a lot more. I mean, the character of Trip a lot more. Seeing Connor talk about his struggle as an actor, kind of you know going through that audition process. I think uh, throughout the the Blu-rays, he has some really great insight. I think the issue I have is with Dominic is in terms of just. Um, obviously he has the same types of insights too. And he has a, it was really great to kind of hear his comments on, on the audition process too. But I think the thing that rubbed me the wrong way was just how we talked about uh, the issue of diversity and inclusiveness. There was talk about him being the first gay character. And he talked about it explicitly on this feature. He's all like, he was reading in a, in a trade magazine, like, Oh, he is going to be a, a character that's gay. And he's going to be a, a, a big issue. And he called up Brandon. And he's like, hey, so have you read this, that they're going to make me the first gay character? And Brandon said, oh, yeah, we're going to put you on The Advocate, which is uh, the leading gay publication. It's going to be a big deal, big thing. And then, you know, he just said, oh, are you fucking kidding me? That's not going to happen. I think the way he was so dismissive of of that, I think Brandon doesn't really come off really well either. It just comes off as... I understand the argument time has changed. That was early 2000s. A lot has changed since now. It was now in 2015. But I think just for me, the way they played, he played the squeamish, just like, oh, I can't play a gay character because I'm such a straight guy. Like, it just goes into the idea of if Star Trek is supposed to be this boldly going, then it seemed very weird that the actor and even the writer themselves didn't really want to go there. Although other shows at that time were going there and that they were expanding those boundaries, but that they weren't doing that. They felt uncomfortable doing that. And... I think for me, I just left a really bad taste in my mouth watching kind of that play out on the on the documentary. How'd you feel about that, there, Jeff? Yeah, I uh, I, I kind of feel the same way as Will. Um, but I've seen some other interviews where where he was saying that, oh well, I just kind of went with it and kind of acted that way, anyways. And it's kind of like he's trying to have it both ways, and yeah. I just never quite know where. Uh, he actually stood on that. As an actor, 
or as some type of morality choice. Oh, just know. like uh, where uh, where they stood from a creative standpoint, whether or not they were actually going for making his character uh, a gay character or not. You know, whether they were or not, it, it it seemed like they couldn't make up their mind, and they were trying to have it both ways. And I, I was like, you know, just pick one. I guess that's like the tough thing again about getting mixed signals when you're trying to craft something creatively. It is mm-hmm. absolutely the worst position to be in because when you set your mind to something creative, and I'm sure this is probably really to the core of being an actor, when you're trying to get into the mindset of this character that you're trying to bring to life in a way that A, is believable to your audience, and B, something that I can use to further my career as a solid piece and body of work for my next stage of my career, because they're not going to be doing this forever. They know that. They have to be able to invest themselves and accept the information and trust it because day in and day out, this is the person that they're going to have to accept being probably longer during the day than they are themselves in real life. I mean, some of these days are 10-hour, 15-hour shoots. So they have to... Now, again, I'm not asking them to be Daniel Day-Lewis here or Denzel Washington, but if they want to become respected in their craft, they have to be able to embrace the information that they're given. If they're not given that information succinctly and with 100% trust and reason, then they can't believe in the information for them to disseminate as a performance. So I can see it both ways with him. If they're not giving him clear direction, he can't believe that the character that he's supposed to be is going to be genuine. So they had to make that decision. If, if the network shied away from that and they're saying, well, we kind of want to make him kind of gay. Well, that doesn't really work, you know, because that's a, that doesn't work for the time period because these labels are supposed to have been gone. And B, if they were trying to make him fully gay man, what does that mean in terms of the writing? Because again, the point is, is that we're supposed to have, we're, we are supposed to have dismantled all of these prejudices, prejudices by this time. That's the point of Star Trek. So where is the goal for that reasoning aside from just making it a controversial choice for ratings? That's the way that I saw that because if you played it and you created Star Trek Enterprise 2001, sure, I think that would have made a great decision. Make him a gay man and allow him to be that champion to further the goals of humanity, to make us a better people, to fight for that. But in the era where this is supposed to have been abolished, it doesn't really make a lot of sense logically in the writing. So why even broach the subject? Yes and no. I think because when we make television now, we're in the time period where we haven't transcended those problems. I think we can't extrapolate from the time period in which it's supposed to be over and say we can't address it because it's over in this time period if we're still making it in this time period where it is still an issue. I think that's a, I think that's the issue is that it was from the writing staff, from Brandon's perspective, or from Rick Berman's perspective, they didn't want to deal with it, or they just didn't want mm-hmm. to go down that route. So it was mixed signals of like, well, I guess sometimes the fans interpret it this way, or the writing is ambiguous enough, but they didn't want to commit to it, and and that Dominic had his own personal opinions about it and his own reluctance about the mixed signals that he was getting. I think it's not necessarily the fact that they didn't do it. I think it was just the reactions to the, just the Avera idea of a gay character just seemed 
it just seemed very homophobic. I mean, I mean, I'll be honest right now. He just seemed very like the typical, ugh, I don't want to play a gay guy. I'm a straight guy. And Brandon, the same way, the dismissive, like, of course not. You're not going to play a gay guy because you're straight. It's that type of just that, that thing that you see, that reluctance from straight males. I can't do that. I think this is an example of the, the reaction is worse than the emission itself. The emission itself is they should have done that because I think it was the 2000s. Other shows were doing that, and I think it was only time that the, you had that representation in the in the 50 years of Trek. You've never had one explicitly in Starfleet, uh, an LGBT mm-hmm. character. But I think the reason for me is an issue is just the reaction that he was uh, on this documentary in 2015 put me off to it. Mm. Okay, no, that's a fair point. I mean, it's... It, I mean, it is an honest reaction. You're giving your honest reaction to it. But just in terms of, you know, approaching it from does it fit in the story? I personally think it could if you're willing to commit to the writing and find ways to make it fit. But that's, again, that's, that goes a little bit deeper into another conversation that doesn't really have to do with the blue release. It has to do with committing to quality writing and actually creating a character and crafting a character for that purpose because that very that very well could have been that character that's trying to understand humanity from a certain perspective, much like the doctor of the EMH was trying to understand humanity from the perspective of not being human. There's always that one character that Star Trek uses as, I guess, as kind of some type of litmus paper or some type of way to understand the human condition. And perhaps... And we've talked about this before. Now, let me, let, me, let, me, uh, let me make this a point. We have talked about this before where we believe that Star Trek would have been more tangible, more real, more acceptable if we believed that not all, of humani- not all of humanity's lesser known or worse, worst instincts were completely gone by this time. Because we did create that scenario where the Earth Cargo Authority was still prejudiced in certain ways. Were still they they would create acts of terrorism against the Starfleet because and there was this Earth first xenophobic type of mentality against any aliens that were coming to the planet. If that existed, then by logic or extrapolation, other sentiments probably still existed too, such as homophobia, racism, along with xenophobia. And I always thought that probably would have created for better drama because when you're dealing with a situation that is completely utopian, that's not, that's not fertile ground for storytelling. Yeah, and I think Enterprise tried to split the difference because they're, they're essentially saying that it's an early version of humanity, but they seem... They're not quite 24th century humans, but they're a lot better than 21st century humans. What I'm saying is that they mm. already have a one-world government. They've eliminated quote-unquote poverty and war. They've, you know, Archer and in, in, in Broken Bow talks about them overcoming all of these things already. And, and to Paul saying, oh, you're not, I mean, you might think you're ready, but you're not. And Archer's like, oh, we actually done a lot of things so far. I don't think that's small potatoes, right? So I think, I think that's the interesting thing too is, is Enterprise wants to be the, the prequel, but we also don't see a lot of what happened after first contact when they first meet the Vulcans. How do they get from there to here, right? In the song, so much of, of what happens is still, kind of uncovered or not um not uncovered but it's not covered and i think that was i think goes back to the original point of they wanted the original series to be 
on Earth. They didn't want to be on the ship right away. They wanted to be in the mud and doing all these things, but the studio wanted something that was more recognizably Star Trek. They need to they need to have the ship and the bridge. But for me, I think I would really like to have seen, you know, how do they get there? Right? What what are they gonna do to get to the Starfleet that we see? And you kind of see that with the crew, but you kind of don't because in a lot of ways they're already halfway there. They're already they're already a better form of humanity. We don't see them getting to that point. Yeah, we still wanted to see them kind of like rolling around in the mud a little bit. And when I say mud, I use that metaphorically as more of like this uh, muddied morality where we know we have to be better because we just pulled ourselves out of the brink of extinction. Like Bones said in Space Seed, you know, or, or Spock said in Space Seed, it's like, you know, you're, you, you were on the brink of total annihilation. Entire populations were being bombed out of existence. So how did we get out of that? But that's, again, that's, that's a great topic, actually, Will, for for some of the things we could have seen in Enterprise, something that the temporal accords could have afforded us if they had the time agents jumping back and forth in time to try and affect. Are you shaking your head yes or shaking your head no? That's like, in my mind, I'm like, that's like a whole new series, right? Like, it's a whole new, I mean, that's that's what Brandon Brog was saying. Like, that's basically a brand new series, right? Um, which would be right. great. It could both be, it could be a great non-Trek series, it could be a great Trek series, but... I've seen other interviews where he was saying that he had come up with that concept as an idea for a non-Trek series oh, yeah. that would stand on its own. Right, where they trade, where they created time travel in what 1996 or 97. Yeah, yeah. So, but it 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 begs the question that I don't think that it it it's not that it wouldn't have worked. It just again, it, it would have taken a lot more than just putting it into a situation and seeing if it, if it would fly. But we're we're digressing a little bit from our from our main point here. So, in all that you've seen, in taking into account the special features and the, just the quality of the set and the the production value, everything that would pretty much drive you to pull your wallet out or to go online and to spend your hard-earned dollars on this Blu-ray set, what are your final thoughts about it? What can you recommend to our listeners? And if you didn't own it. Would you be inclined to buy it solely based off of what you have read online, the packaging? How would the marketing of this particular product have spoken to you as a consumer? I think it's definitely a great package because, you know, you get to see Star Trek in uh, the way it's meant to be seen on a modern on a modern um, on a modern visual aesthetic. I think this is going to be the easiest transition if someone got introduced to the new JJ movies. I think we talked about this before. Norm is if you watch new mm-hmm. JJ movies, you watch the um, those effects, and then you you had to choose a series to introduce someone to. If you're just judging based off the visual aesthetics, then Enterprise is the one you go to is because a it just looks so much cleaner and sharper. It just has an appeal of a modern show because it was made in the 2000s. It is a modern show, and I think the Blu-ray is just just amp up all the strengths of Enterprise in that way. And the fact that it was just, I think, the most technically proficient of all of them because they've had the experience of all the other series. So by the time they got to Enterprise, they were really good at what they were doing, right? The Akudas, Herm Zimmerman, Doug Drexler, they were good at what they were doing. And it really shows. And in terms of the the value added, I think it's, for me, that's the biggest sell for me because I knew going in that the Enterprise Blu-ray specials were, people were talking about like, they're really candid in these specials. They're they pretty much uh, are opening up, and you know, even knowing that going in and still watching, I still learned a lot. And 
I think the crazy thing is, I think they're even holding a lot more back from this. There's a lot more that they could talk about, but just from the body language, you can just tell they just want to unload. But from but what we do get is so very insightful, not just into Enterprise, but I mean, it's really a retrospective of all Star Trek. Um, because up until this point, beyond this, it's just the 09 stuff, uh, JJ verse stuff. So this is really a retrospective on this era of Trek and how Enterprise fits into it. And I think that's, for me, like that's the greatest thing uh, to have as a fan. You know, Will, you got yours recently, and it was a collector set that was more of a giant tome than four individual sets. Does that make it feel less separated as a series, as a collectible, or does that not matter because the tome is so well-produced? Yeah, that's tough because not only did I get the collector set, I got the UK set. <laughs> so I went to Amazon UK and got the set that was, it's region free. So I so I can play here in the US. But um, I don't think the US collective set has been put out yet. I got the one that from the UK and it's yes and no because um, it's a collected set, but I think it's all just in one box and it's beautiful. But at the same time, yes. mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 Sometimes individual discs or individual features and can kind of get lost in all of it. It's just all listed in one thing. And sometimes if you have an individual season set, there's more there's more care given to like the episodes within that season. But when it's all collected in one set, it's just like everything's listed in one big collection and there's there's no specific thing that kind of is 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 spelled out or highlighted. And I think sometimes you can kind of lose or lose track of features that may have been more emphasized in a season only set but i don't regret getting it because you know it buying all the seasons as it came out like i don't have that kind of money so i think it's good for fans to kind of see all the stuff in a collected set and uh, it's well worth it okay so in terms of the the dollar value because this again this goes to the point of this series or, or this particular episode each one of these individual sets have a dollar value associated with it i think they were around what jeff 60, 70 for the Blu-ray sets? Um, well, that was what they ended up selling for. I think the MSRP was like closer to 120, oof, 130. Oof. Right. So when you, were, when you were waiting for these to come out, individually you would be purchasing, purchasing these at retail, say, or say from Amazon, I would say upwards around 70 mm-hmm. for four sets. You know, you're looking at X amount of dollars. I'm just because... This is how they were rolled out eventually. Now, Will, yours was probably at a pretty decent cost savings. So as much as I would like for for the fans or the listeners to pick this up, because I would like for them to be interested in what we're saying here and pick this up, perhaps they would be better off and be more frugal and responsible with their dollars to wait and possibly buy the set that you have because it's just a better value? I would think so. I think but that's the thing with when you when you buy online with Amazon Prime, these deals only last for X amount of times. They don't really kind of they don't give you advance warning. So um I relied on Trekcore because Trekcore broadcasted the fact that they were selling this at a, right, like yeah. a steep discount, but those prices don't stay there forever. So you have to get within a certain window and then it'll go back up and then they'll at some point it'll kind of go back down again. But I think for like a good three-week period there, um, you could get it. Um, I don't know what the pound equivalence is because I got it from Amazon UK. But uh, with shipping, the, what it ended up being for US was just under ninety for all four seasons. Ninety dollars US really? for all four seasons. <laughs> wow! 
But I think that's the issue. I think, and I don't want to get into this issue, but I think that's a larger issue of like, does DS9 get get Blu-ray treatment? Does Voyager get Blu-ray treatment? If all if fans are waiting for the collective sets and people are saying, oh, people are not buying the individual sets for enough uh, to justify the cost, I think that's a whole other issue too. But I think that's that's something that's difficult because digital media, I mean, physical media is also dying slowly too, right? So you mm-hmm. have this issue mm-hmm. too is, can fans shell out $90 for hard media when the paradigm is totally shifting towards streaming? And I think that's something, and, and this is my own personal venting, is I think CBS just didn't understand the extent to which the market changed and the price point to which fans were going to buy TOS, TNG, Enterprise. And I think it's been really tricky. That's why we don't see DS9 and Voyager, but I think... Uh, they learned a hard lesson. Well, I think in terms part of, of what contributed, uh, part of what contributed to that was they had the next generation sets when they were coming out on DVD. They were releasing each se- season one at a time, one at a time. Mm-hmm. And then when they finally had all seven seasons finished, then they released this big box set with an extra disc of features that was not in any of the previous season sets. And when they started releasing the Blu-rays, people are like, "Well, I don't want to have that happen again, so I'm just going to wait for the box set of all of them." And that never happened because the sales weren't there for the previous uh, season sets. And that's also why we're not getting DS9 or Voyager Blu-rays is because they didn't have the sales on the TNG Blu-rays. Yeah, it's such a chicken and egg problem, too. So in the end, Jeff, in your final analysis, what did you think of the Blu-ray? And did you pick these up individually as they came out? Or did you wait for... Yeah, I had them uh, all on uh, pre-order. I would pre-ordered every single one of them when they came out. Um, I was one of the people that was buying them, um, but I, I just I I have my HD TV and I can really see the difference in the picture between a DVD and a Blu-ray, and so it was really important to me to be able to have that difference in picture quality. I mean, one of the things that I love is on the Blu-rays I can pause the picture and I can read the small print on some of the tags on the consoles or you know some of the things that are on the screen I can read what it has written on the screen and the level of detail that they go to to actually have something that's related to the story on the screen is just really impressive and a lot of the time you can't see that on the DVDs. This is probably the most telling thing, folks, because you have somebody who started off their career with Enterprise as mocking the Enterprise as an Akira-class ship to pre-ordering the Blu-rays as they came out. So they did something right, in Jeff's opinion. <laughs> if I'm going to actually punctuate this with one last little story, and this is something that, for me, I love seeing. When Will got his Blu-ray set, I lent him, almost at the exact same time, I lent him... Um, my personal set of Babylon 5 and I was so excited for him to start into it and then when he said he got his set he posted a picture and you can you can find this in the Babel conference he posted a picture of the menu of the Blu-ray and just went ad nauseum about how amazing the set was and I lost him as a B5 fan for some time so I got so much TV to watch it's the ultimate first world (laughs) problem I literally don't have enough time in my day to watch all the TV I, I, I have the same problem. It. I'm trying to introduce my uh, um, my future wife into all of the different shows that I watch, and there's just too many of them. This is true. This is true. But the Blu-ray set for um, for our folks out there, it really is a fantastic, well-produced, and incredibly high-quality collectible. If you're into collectibles and you would like to get them as individual sets, I also do have um, the four sets when they first came out because you know I'm as I hate Enterprise and 
they are fantastic. They look great on a shelf. But Will's set also looks fantastic because there's nothing like busting out a giant tome of Star Trek and holding it in your hand and saying, this is quality material. And But the other interesting thing, and in, in, in my last point, is that it would have been really interesting to see how this would have been accepted if, in fact, they did not add the Star Trek name to the title. Because then it would have been marketed just as Enterprise on the spine and on the front cover. And I wonder if people, just in a passing fancy, would have looked at it and said, hmm, or... Did Star Trek actually add to the value-added benefit for consumers who have a cursory knowledge of Star Trek and say, hey, you know what? It's on discount. I'll give it a try. We would love to hear, yeah, we would love to hear your thoughts about that on the Babel conference. I, I think Star Trek was, is pretty essential, even if they didn't do it. For the actual series intro, I think that if they were selling copies of it, they would have figured out some way to put Star Trek on the name of that, either Enterprise, a Star Trek series as like a subtitle mm-hmm. or something. But I feel like... Star Trek is such a brand, and that's another thing. I feel like CBS and Paramount are so content on going on the gravy train of Star Trek merchandise, where I feel like if any way they can do, uh, if, any way they can put Star Trek on the name of something, they will. And I think for Enterprise, if even if it wasn't in the intro of it, they would have definitely found a way by the time of the Blu-rays to put Star Trek and make sure that people know that it's part of something bigger. You know, they would have probably have done something as as very cost effective as putting on a bullet sticker saying before Kirk and Spock, there was Enterprise. And then it's, that's it. That's really kind of like all you needed. I think they did that on the the movie set with Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto. They're saying that the uh, the the adventures of Kirk and Spock, that's all you really need to say because the legacy of it. And that's how just strong those particular parts of the brand are. And but for for me, I I really do highly recommend the Blu-ray. Again, it has great production value. I would try and find it for a better price point than where you would probably see it online. I think Amazon probably has it still nearly around retail. See if you can put your wish list and email on your account there so they can notify you if there's a gold box deal. I believe I actually got one or two of my sets from a gold box deal, and that's probably the best cost savings you can get. And I think that's what Will was talking about too. Well, you know, guys, that was a fantastic, that was a fantastic conversation about one, one of the four Blu-ray sets that we're going to talk about. And it's been a lot of fun. Well, we kind of sang the blues a little bit and we got a lot into the... And there was so much more that we could have talked about too. Like, I'm going to throw this out there right now for the fans. There was a Shatner cameo that was talked about. We didn't even talk about that. That's an entire discussion unto itself, right? This is true. And this is why they're going to have to get this set because you can only get those kind of really good details from this set. Yeah, there's also all the uh, um, the commentary tracks too that they recorded some new ones for the Blu-ray as well. That's true, that's true. So we've really kind of like just hit the tip of the iceberg here when it comes to all this fantastic content. You can only get it on the Blu-ray set. You do not have access to this if you are an iTunes downloader of TV shows because Enterprise, all four seasons, it's on iTunes, but that's all you get. You get it in 720 and it broadcasts, you can set your preferences to broadcast in 720 and download in 720, but they also offer it always, you know, at 1080 as well. But you, all be, you will be missing the special features. And for a lot of us, we know the content backwards and forwards, but we don't know the special features. And that's kind of, it's funny, we'll spend that kind of money on, on these particular behind the scenes. But this is where you really learn about your series. You get in real deep contact with the the behind the scenes and the makings of, and you get to learn a little bit more about your favorite characters. So for me, I would give this five stars out of five because 
of just the quality of the content and the behind the scenes alone. So do you guys have any ratings for it? Yeah. So, I mean, just, just the technical, and I'm just going to give a rating on the, the technical and just the way it was put together, the technical specifications of it. It's, it's a five out of five. I think the, the title screens are incredible. The title screens are like the actual NX-01 bridge displays. I think it's just so well done and just so well produced. Um, I think it was also produced or co-produced by Rob Burnett, who did the TNG Blu-ray uh, special features too. Oh, that's right, yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, five out of five just in terms of just the actual quality of the Blu-ray for sure. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the and those uh, titles, uh, when you look at the DVD title screens, it looks like you're looking at a monitor on the NX-01. When you look at the Blu-ray ones, it's like the monitor exploded and you're looking at it in 3D and it's got code running in the background and all kinds of other stuff. And I was highly amused because it's actually HTML code. <laughs> <laughs> So thanks, guys. Thanks for all of your input, and thanks um, in, on, on behalf of the fans, thanks for giving us your great recommendations because it is something that's worth picking up. It definitely deserves your dollars, and I hope you get a chance to enjoy the special features as much as we did and definitely as much as we enjoyed talking about them. But this isn't the only topic we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week, so here's a quick look at some of the things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. So now we're going to have to spend like a half an hour talking about these Star Trek comics when I could be reading Star Wars comics. Yes. I hope the listeners appreciate the <laughs> sacrifices that we're making to bring this moderately entertaining podcast to them. Earl Grey. We divide the ship into one of two ways. Port goes to port. I better not see any starboard guys on the starboard phaser target practice. You guys know which side of the ship you're on. The orb. Also, the original title of this episode was A Matter of Breeding, which when we talk about things feeling TNG-ish, that could have been a Riker episode. (laughs) (laughs) The Ready Room. It's about people and feelings and emotions. It's about philosophy. It's about the future. It's about hope. It's about glory. It's about intellectual promise. That's what Axnar is about. It is not a story about pew, pew, pew. I promise you that. To the journey! Well, you telling me that I need to make love to this alien woman or she's going to die? Well, <laughs> for king and country, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right, only on Star Trek. Warp 5. I remember watching Broken Bow when Enterprise first debuted when I was in high school. I remember revisiting it now in full, and I had forgotten the fact that Future Guy had actually played an integral role from the get-go with Silic and the Sulaban, which we'll talk about later in the show. Commentary, Trek stars. But you would never pick up on that based on the way that it plays out, aside from the fact that they explicitly tell you in the dialogue, (laughs) you know? The 602 Club. The prequels are the most autobiographical uh, works that Lucas has done. Because if you follow Anakin's arc, he comes onto the scene, nobody's seeing him coming, and then he's a wonderkind, but he doesn't know what to do with it, and he's overwhelmed and feels a bit trapped. Literary Treks. Deep Space Nine, among all the Star Trek series, is the one that really, over time, and I'm talking about now on the television series, not just in the books, changed the most. Axanar, the official podcast. 
It is the spirit of TOS that matters that's being captured, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic. The aesthetic was 1966 to 1969 that had its moment, it had its time, and there's a certain amount of charm still to that. But it doesn't allow you to push the narrative forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back, in my opinion. Women at Warp. My absolute favorite thing about this episode is that this is a love potion only if it's between a man and a woman. They make it explicitly clear that if you touch two men or two women, they just become really good friends. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So if you like what we discussed on this podcast, you can help us keep all of this content and our shows coming to you each week by becoming a patron of the network on Patreon. Now, if you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all of the great perks we have for you. Now, one of the things that we're doing new is something that Will hosts for the roundtable, and that's something for patrons. So, Will, can you talk a little bit about the roundtable program? Sure. So we've already had two monthly roundtables, and that's just... uh a way for us hosts on Trek FM to interact with our patrons who support the network and who's uh, without that support, we couldn't do what we do. So it's just a great venue for us to kind of get together in a very casual, free-flowing environment to talk anything Trek. So everything is fair game. Anything about Trek, whether it's a meta topic or in-universe topic or both, is fair game. So we've already had two already, one in June and July. We've had great feedback. We've had uh, Floyd Dorsey, we've had Mike Morrison, who are our two associate producers, come on and talk. Jeff's been on there, Normie been on there. I've talked to other hosts from on there, other pe- um, and other patrons who I only interact online. I'm able to have a face to face interaction, so it's really great. But it's only available to to patrons who support us at the twenty five dollar level or above, and it's just a, a way for us to uh, reward them and kind of give us special thank you for helping support. Track FM help us bring great programming to you each and every week. So hopefully, if you want to be a part of that, please join us on Patreon.com. And that's one of the perks, again, that you're hitting that $25 level. That's one of the milestones we have for for the donors at Patreon.com. And you also have access to content and exclusive content and producer credits. That's how I started with the network. I became one of the associate producers for a couple of the shows here on Trek FM. We have seats on our content development team and a lot more. So please, we, really, we are an independently funded network. We do this by the skin of our volunteering pants. We give up our time and we give up our resources to bring all of this great content to you. And if you like what you hear, much like all of those type of support donation campaigns you hear for classical music stations, Patreon.com is kind of like the same thing. If you go on their site, patreon.com slash trek.fm, see what you'd like to donate to us just to give us a little bit of a helping hand with uh, helping upgrade our equipment or maintaining our servers or just things of that nature. So if you like what you hear here and would like to support us and just be part of our endeavor, please give us a shot. Check us out, patreon.com slash trek.fm. And then, Will, you also mentioned... Floyd Dorsey and Mike Morrison, they are associate producers here for Warp 5. They've done a great job not only on supporting the show, but also being very vocal and very supportive on the Babel Conference. Now, that's the Trek FM dedicated Facebook listeners page. You can type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, on your search engine on Facebook, and that is a listeners-only dedicated page. So if you would like to join us, please hit the invites. We will let you in there because we know that you are a listener 
of the network. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page. Or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and leave us a voice message and let us know what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show, what you like about the network. Give us any suggestions, any tips. We would love to hear from you. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, Facebook, facebook.com slash trekfm, and as I mentioned earlier, the Babel Conference. Now, Jeff, take a deep breath because there's a lot of stuff coming your way in the near future. And for me and for all of our listeners, and I'd like to speak on behalf of Will, we hope that you have much success in your upcoming weeks. We know that you're going to be a, uh, a newlywed soon and you got a lot of planning. So let us know what's going on with you and how your listeners and fans can get in touch with you on the interwebs. Well, um, I can be found on uh, Twitter, at uh, Harlander. Um, I'm also on Facebook. I frequently post on the Beeble Conference and also on the Axonar fan group. Um, and I have Trekpedia.com, which you've mentioned uh, earlier in the show. And I also uh, do my comic books. Uh, uh, those uh, I'm on uh, BandwidthComics.com or Facebook.com slash BandwidthComics. Uh, my uh, got four issues out. I'm working on the fifth one right now. I just submitted the first one to Comixology, and tons of stuff going on. Like you said, so I'm I'm keeping busy. You forgot to add right, Renaissance yeah. Man to your resume because I feel <laughs> like that definitely deserves to be there, Jeff. That's that's incredible. The fact that you can do all these things for me, who could barely draw a straight line. I think that's so incredible that you're doing your own comic book. I ran out of room on the business card. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Jeff, and thanks for being on the show tonight. And, well, don't sell yourself short. You do so much, so much for behind the scenes of the network. You come here and you're co-host for Warp 5, and you probably write the most comprehensive production notes of any podcast that I've ever seen. So you are creative in your own way. So I applaud you for that, and I thank you for doing a lot of the work here, helping Warp 5 stay afloat and keeping those plasma injectors firing. So... Please let everyone know how our listeners can get in touch with you on Subspace. Oh, thanks, Norm. Well, you can always reach me at Twitter at at Will underscore Win. It's about N-G-U-Y-E-N. You can shoot me a tweet anytime just to talk Trek, uh, talk about the shows that we've done or shows we want to do in the future. You can talk things non-Trek, too. I'm always available. Of course, I'm also always in the Babel Conference with uh, Jeff and Norm talking about things Trek and non-Trek. We talk about all things geeky there, too, so we'd love to hear you uh, and your opinions there. And um, I'm also, of course, the co-host for Warp 5. And uh, Norm, take it away with your contact information. All right. Well, first, I'm actually looking forward to Will's next T-shirt offering. So that's going to be that's gonna be exciting and fun because he has probably the, the coolest T-shirt rotation right now of pretty much any of the hosts on the network, except for Chris Jones' Spanish Inquisition T-shirt because no one expects the Spanish that's Inquisition. That's true. That is uh, very true. <laughs> So you can always find me here on the network as co-host Warp 5 with Will. You can also find me on the Babel Conference, as we've mentioned before. You can also find me on Twitter at Norman Lau. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. You can always find me on the Axonar fan group page on Facebook because I am 100% behind that project, and I am a supporter of Alec Peters, Robert Meyer Burnett, Bill Hunt, and all of the folks there that do all the hard work to make that project a success. And finally... <laughs> I have that shirt. I have that shirt. <laughs> Jeff is currently right. showing a picture of the shirt that he's wearing. All right. I'm going to screenshot that and put that up 
after we're done with this show. So, and finally, I'm a proud sponsor of Trek FM through Patreon, and I am an executive producer here for Trek FM on the network. So thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, and join us next time here in the conference room for another episode of Warp 5.